It's a meritocracy here on the layers atop of Bitcoin, and there's always somewhere to retreat back to that's safe. That's the Bitcoin base layer. Like the whole Bitcoin ethos bleeds through all this stuff, guys. Like conservatism, bare asset, trustlessness, a non-debt-based system. These are all things that seem to permeate innovators through the layers because the people that want to move Bitcoin tend to be wound the same way of wanting this thing to be robustly decentralized as it moves forward. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us for our eighth installation of the Bitcoin Basics series. In this episode, we explain why Bitcoin has second layer protocols built on top of it. This is an important episode for understanding why Bitcoin, the base layer, is built the way it is. In any system, there are trade-offs. Bitcoin's base layer is tuned to emphasize decentralization and therefore censorship resistance primarily. This is important because everything built on top of it depends on the base layer ultimately. So, with this in mind, layer 2 technologies that reference Bitcoin's base layer can improve on scale and privacy without giving up the most important features of Bitcoin. Censorship resistance, auditability, and security. Modularity on top of this baseline is the most efficient and sensical way to improve it. There are unlimited tertiary layers that can be built atop Bitcoin, and the best ones will win out. This is how we scale Bitcoin while not compromising any of its fundamental values. Speaking of compromise, there is none of that when you cold store your Bitcoin on a cold card Mark IV. The Mark IV is intended to be the apex predator for security of your valuable Bitcoin. In the past year, we have seen a myriad of reasons why you should trust no one. The counterparty risk is completely taken out of the picture when you store your seeds on a Mark IV. You can use the Mark IV in an extremely simple setup, perfect for beginners. And as your knowledge grows, the Mark IV can grow with you. It runs the gamut from super simple setup to very advanced setups. Check out the cold card and all the other cool gear CoinKite sells at store.coinkite.com and use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. All right. Basics. What is this? Episode eight. I'm coming to you, gentlemen, live from my sister-in-law's bedroom, sister-in-law's master bedroom. There is a, what is it? It's a queen. I'm actually surprised looking at it. I was kind of thinking they had a king. Uh, queen bed. Um, it's actually a pretty clean room, but yeah, I'm uh, on a family trip. I'm uh, up in the Twin Cities and uh, making do with uh, a makeshift studio, but I'm, I'm pumped to be here. How is everybody? Good, good. Hey, are you uh, talking shit about queen beds there? I mean, I are am. you some kind yeah. of an elitist that only yeah, has a I am. I am size a, only? I'm king or bust. I'm a king maximalist. What do you guys wow. have, by the way? Daz, what do you have? What king. are you in the king? We've, we've, you know, and you don't talk to us about like proper parenting because uh, we've still got like seven-year-olds in the bed majority of the time. So, you know, king in, bed maximalist, yeah, you have to, yeah, you have to have. Seb, what are you rocking? Are you preferring the when it's wider than it is long? Is that what you're saying? Because I think that it comes to- <laughs> I feel like this is going to go quickly down the wrong hole here. I like to sleep. I like to sleep in a massive chode. That's my. That's my favorite. I'm a, Josh, I'm a you're queen. seriously. You're, I'm in a queen, a man. Queen. Like I just haven't upgraded. I bought a nice mattress, and I'm like, it's big enough for my wife and I. And when ki- like, it is kind of nice that there's not enough room for kids. Like, sorry, doesn't that's you true. don't fit? Get out of here. That yeah. is um, a good excuse, a sound excuse, a valid excuse. Hmm. That gets the wheels turning. Seb, you got you got you still rocking the single or 
I'm on the single right now because my parents are in town. The parents are in town, so they're <laughs> in the main bedroom and I'm in the uh, spare bedroom. But I just, have you ever seen the, what, a great song. what is it? They've got like, is it the California King? Is that the biggest, uh, biggest one? That's the big yeah. long one. Yeah. Fucking massive. That's the, actually the that's California, the beds. I think the California is a, a tad narrower, but longer. Um, that fits me much then. longer. Yeah. I'm, so Seb, your parents are sleeping in your bed. Yeah. Wow. That's, <laughs> I'm a, I figure, I figure Seb Bunny's parents fuck pretty hard. Uh, so it's <laughs> a little bit disturbing. I, uh, <laughs> Hopefully they're holding back for you. I doubt they are. It's it's like it's like the reverse. Like normally when you go back home, right? You bring your girlfriend or your wife back to your childhood bedroom. It's like everybody gets horny and you bang it out. It's like in reverse for Seb's parents. It's like they're staying with their son. They get in that environment. They get more horny, Josh. So I would look Clean out. Clean those dude. sheets, Seb. Wow. I bet yeah. you didn't want to think about that today. Well, I'm, I'm in the room next to them, so they're awfully quiet. So. Um, I will say... Shout out to the Minneapolis Bitcoin meetup. Uh, Brandon Quidham and the squad was nice enough to have me out last night. Uh, Josh was too lazy to make the drive, so it was just me solo Way mission. too lazy. Uh, gave a little talk, but great, vibrant meetup in Minneapolis. There were like, I don't know, I think someone said 90 people show up at Shanahassee. I may, may or may not be pronouncing that right. Distillery, gorgeous place. Guy that owns it's a big Bitcoiner. Just an awesome meetup. And, and in typical fashion... At these meetups, we haven't been to many, but as we say, the, the space is 70% super squared away, intelligent, intellectual, awesome people, and 30% complete fucking weirdos. And uh, last night was uh, representative of that that breakdown as well, Josh. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds about accurate. Uh, Dan is just the attention whore that drives five hours to go talk to people for 30 minutes. I get it. Totally yep. understand. Yep. That's just, how it works. Wanted, he wants to be on a pedestal. He wants to talk down to all the plebs. And, Josh uh, does all the dirty work and I it. take all the glory. So, <laughs> yep. So today, uh, oh yeah, we didn't even really, so Daz, what's going on with you? We, you had a puppy just before we uh, started recording. Where did that uh, cute little guy go? Not a scam. Yeah. So we got, I don't know, uh, a couple of episodes ago, I might tell you is that we um, got Facebook scammed a couple hundred bucks for a puppy. But so this one arrived, uh, Mail mail order had to come on a plane, believe it or not. Jesus Christ. Anyway, another rabbit hole for another day. Uh, but yeah, no, a puppy arrived safe and sound. Scout Satoshi B. That's his name. Nice. I had to uh, had to get the Satoshi in there. The kids were like, what? Like, come on, boys. Get on board. Get on board. I wanted to call him. I actually wanted to call him um, Oshi so we could just go, sit, Oshi, sit. And <laughs> Dad nice. joke. Didn't go down. Yeah, we'll have to bring him back on before we end this thing. So today, boys, the topic, uh, Bitcoin Basics, Episode 8, like Dan said, and we are talking about Bitcoin base layer and then how these tertiary layers are built, why they're built, and just, I guess, elucidate the points and why it is that Bitcoin needs secondary layers, what it is that is lacking potentially on the base layer, and the reason why those uh, those things are possibly lacking. I think we're going to get into a lot of that today. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Mm. Uh, I think it's good that we start off uh, talking about some of the trade-offs and reasons for these trade-offs. This is basically the idea called the blockchain trilemma. I'm sure the three of you guys are familiar with it. It's basically that there are three uh, pedestals or like a triangle you could imagine. Security being one side of it, decentralization being another, and then scalability. So on the security front, Auditability, which is a huge part of the security aspect. So how does it that we know there are only 21 million Bitcoins? 
How do we audit that and verify it for ourselves? Rhetorically, the answer is a node and the ability to actually see them. And that's the shortcoming with like zero prolet, I'm sorry, zero knowledge proofs with tokens like Monero or Zcash. There's not necessarily a way to actually audit everything because it's all opaque. So Bitcoin is not as private as it could be for the reason of accountability. We want to be able to see that we're all getting the, we all have this limit of 21 million coins and we can see that everyone else has that limit. On decentralization, nodes, more nodes is more decentralization. And decentralization is the permissionlessness. Democratization of the nodes allows user to, users to control the characteristics of the network and not allow anyone to take over or bad actors to kind of uh, put the network in a direction that we don't want. And then scalability, which is simply the ability to handle high amounts of transactions. More bandwidth means more storage and nodes have to be more expensive to run and set up. So all of these trade-offs are for decentralization and censorship resistance. That is the basic reason that we have these trade-offs. Even Adam Back himself said in 2014 that he tried to improve with this, this mm. trilemma by changing some of the characteristics. And he found that Bitcoin just fit very, very squarely in the sweet spot where adjusting any of these parameters would cause issues with one of the other ones. And he, I think he was the first person to actually suggest that we should have tertiary or secondary layers on Bitcoin in order to improve some of these characteristics. Yeah, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Essentially, if I was going to summarize sort of what you introduced there, Josh, it's that the base layer of Bitcoin cannot do everything. When we talk about monetary systems, monetary technologies, protocols in general, even that stem outside of money, one specific layer cannot handle it all. And I think that this is something that's been represented more broadly in monetary systems, which I think is worth, worth getting into. Maybe I'll shelve that. Someone else can take it. We'll get to it. But the point here is the base layer of Bitcoin is intended to be boring and highly secure, to do one thing very, very well, and that is enforce a fixed supply cap of censorship-resistant global money. Now, as we think through all the other applications that are going to be necessary, things like payment applications, and, and the list is going to go on here today, the key is to be able to do that without sacrificing that based most important use case. So um, it's been discovered really over the last 15 years that it's very hard to do it all on one layer. We need more layers. And, and there is probably someone listening that's like, what are you guys even talking about? There are there's a stack of protocols that are being built on top of Bitcoin. We talk about this analogy all the time. We're beating a dead horse potentially, but I'll say it again. The, the internet is not all one protocol. You have TCP IP at the base layer and a ton of things built on top of it. HTTPS, SMTP, Bitcoin base layer is being built on and it's happening very quickly. The most prominent second layer that, that is, that's out there is the Lightning Network, but there's other ones that we could get into. Things built on Lightning like Taro, Things like ARC, side chains like Liquid, these are all things we'll touch over this hour. No, and I think both you guys bring up such good points. And I wanted to just really reiterate one point in particular, which is Bitcoin, we're really trying to be decentralized. And going back over, I think we discussed this in one of the previous episodes, which is, well, if we increase, like Bitcoin, for instance, has about seven transactions per second. And if we increase that to 100, 200, 300, well, isn't that better? And the reality is that, as we've discussed, transactions take up data. 
And so if you increase the transaction volume per second, well, then that's going to consume more data. So at home, uh, at home node runners can no longer kind of go to their local PC store and buy a SD card or a hard drive that can effectively carry that, 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 that storage space to be able to account for this increased transaction. So because of that, we want to focus on decentralization and minimal transaction speed in order to maximize the capacity of the Bitcoin network. And being able to expand in terms of layers is where we achieve these other benefits. And the, the traditional monetary system is exactly the same. When we look at the traditional monetary system, what most people don't necessarily recognize is that at the very base level, like zero, level zero effectively, we have uh, Fedwire in the US. So Fedwire allows for the Federal Reserve to be able to interact with the central banks. And then above that, you've got interbank lending or interbank kind of transactions such as like SWIFT and so on, which allows the banks to be able to communicate with one another and send money between one another. And then on top of that, you've got layer three and you've got things like credit cards uh, and debit cards. And then you've got in Canada, we've got e-transfers. I don't know what they're called in the US. And so we've built this layered system with all of them offering different benefits and obviously advantages and disadvantages. And that's the same with Bitcoin. We're not trying to accommodate everyone and everything. We're trying to build a modular approach, build things on top of Bitcoin base layer, ensuring that we have a sound, stable layer at the base. I think that's where we saw the proliferation of a lot of these shit coins over time, particularly in 2017, mm. where they, they were looking at the engineering problems of, of potentially Bitcoin's base layer, not realizing that we would be able to stack protocols on top to such a degree that we've been able to achieve. So they were trying to pivot and trying to take some of these um, trade-offs and that trilemma in order to be able to scale. So if we were going to be able to, you know, compete with a Visa network, which which settles billions of transactions in a day, it was never going to be achieved on Bitcoin's base layer. So that's where we saw the proliferation of these alternative currencies. But now as we go accelerate through time, we're able to look back, we're able to really critically assess what the trade-offs were. And most of the time, those trade-offs were around security and decentralization, which is it, it sort of goes against the thesis of why Bitcoin exists in the first place. We're trying to remove right. that trustless relationship with intermediaries and we're trying to remove, you know, as much as possible, put it as a decentralized protocol, put the power back into the hands of the users. And that's where we've seen, you know, if we talk about again, which we've brought up a couple of times throughout this series with Ethereum, that's probably the best, you know, yeah. number two yep. sort of coin. And they've had to make massive trade-offs in order to get that scalability for what they wanted to do on the base layer. And it's resulted in a concentrate, a mass concentration of centralization. So there are people involved in that, in that, um, uh, in that project who have a lot of say over how that, how that works, what the fundamental protocol is, what the monetary supply is, what the monetary policy is. Uh, as well as now we're on this proof of stake where you're getting a lot of concentration of like even being able to decide who is and who is not allowed to transact, which is totally against the thesis of why this thing exists in the first place. Exactly, so, yep. Um, I, I might throw it back to you guys to see if you've got anything to add this, Dan. Yeah, I think that this has been a great place to start. Basically, what we're saying is that what we know about these systems as we try to create robustly decentralized immutable money. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is that enforcing monetary immutability and enabling huge throughput of transactions, th th those two things are not possible, as we've said on the same protocol. Like, for example, 
Visa, I think, does like tens of thousands of transactions a second. Bitcoin mm-hmm. does three to five transactions a second. So there is not much throughput on the Bitcoin base layer. The problem is when you try to do, when you try to get Visa throughput on the base layer of a money protocol, you sacrifice, as you said, Daz, you sacrifice the whole point here. The thing yeah. becomes centralized. And Ethereum, which we said, I think we hinted at this in the Bitcoin Not Crypto episode, but at this date and time, it takes like $20,000, like a $20,000 computer to run an Ethereum node and a ton of technical chops, not to mention just, just bandwidth requirements, energy usage, right? So to, to have a, a robustly decentralized node network, you can't do this all on the base layer. I think an apt comparison would be a lot of these other crypto tokens that are trying to do everything, they're trying to build 100, 200 year foundations of a house using the same materials that they're trying to build a, a gorgeous master bathroom with on the third floor. It's just not possible. This needs to be built out in layers. And as these layers get built, and I think this is one of the things we need to hint on, you can't lose the bare decentralized component here. And that's the beauty of Lightning is that most Bitcoin layers are different than le- legacy layers in finance because there's no intermediaries. So as we build these, we need to build them responsibly. And I think that's what we've seen so far in the early stages of Bitcoin. And I think just to give like a physical example, I was just looking it up, like Solana, which has 10 megabyte uh, block sizes and much quicker blocks, whereas Bitcoin is sitting at around one megabyte sometimes because of the way they actually account for them. They're, they're slightly bigger than that. Uh, and we're obviously every 10 minutes. Solana has only been around for a, a few years and their block, uh, their node in order to run a node, it's a, you need a hundred terabyte hard drive. Like the average individual cannot go and buy a hundred terabyte hard drive. It is an impossibility. And so when you look at how many nodes they've got, they've got a couple thousand nodes. And most of those I would argue are underneath a handful of companies. So there's probably mm-hmm. only a handful of actual individuals operating those nodes that are able to monitor the ledger. Whereas when we look at Bitcoin, I don't know, I haven't looked at it recently, but the last time I looked, we have tens of thousands of public nodes and many more private nodes that aren't necessarily signaling. So I think it's fascinating when you dive into the decentralization aspect because Bitcoin does not want to compromise on that. And um, this goes back to the block size wars. We brought this up a couple of times as well throughout this series. So it's a good, really good book to, to read, The Block Size Wars. Um, forget the author. Um, but it gives you a good framework of what happened in 2017 when uh, there was a, a, a big um, sort of push from mainly miners and exchanges to increase the block size to enable more throughput on. And what that would have meant, like Seb's just um, highlighted, is it would have very quickly meant that running a node would have been outside of the ability for most normal, you know, normal people with a normal PC and access to normal hardware in order to be able to run a node at home, it would have meant that the blockchain would have inflated. And the block sizes that they were proposing would have only been like a band-aid solution for the scalability. They still would have been saturated at some point. So it wasn't solving the base layer issue of scalability. It was like putting a band-aid fix in, oh, perhaps we could just make them a little bit bigger, right? And then we can put a few more transactions into that base layer block. But it's still, it was still only a band-aid problem. It was still only a finite amount of transactions that you would have been able to fit into that block and thus re- also putting it outside of the ability for most people to be able to run a node at home, which is where Bitcoin's um, decentralization really really exists, is that ability for anybody to participate in the network. Sure. And uh, just to put a good point on that, 
if I want to run a Bitcoin node right now, so Dan, you said Ethereum takes around $20,000 of computer equipment. You also have to pile on top of that. I believe it's 32 ETH you need to have in order to actually run this thing. So you, now you're looking at a price of like, I don't know, anywhere from 50 to 70,000, depending on what the price is at the moment. Right now, I just looked it up. Start9 selling their most basic server, which can run a Bitcoin node, has everything you need, plug and play for $219. Or you, you know, alternatively, you could just grab some off the shelf uh, surplus part computer from eBay for probably a hundred bucks. You could put their software on it and you could be running it very quickly. And we're talking about one to $200 of the parts here versus 50 to $70,000. That should put a pretty good exclamation point on exactly what we're talking about here. This is extremely easy. Almost anyone in the world can afford to spend a hundred dollars to run their own node, verify, and, you know, check their own Bitcoin wallet themselves. It just allows this decentralization to be tens of thousands of nodes. The other thing I wanted to add to what Seb was saying, there's two ways you could create more transactions on the base layer. It could either be bigger blocks or they could change the block time. They could make the block time two minutes. Mm. The problem with uh, Seb already elucidated what the bigger blocks do. The problem with these faster blocks is that synchronization becomes an issue at some point. And Satoshi chose 10 minutes because that allows this information to disseminate across the world so that miners can be competitive with each other. You don't have all of these uh, uh, orphan blocks and issues on the blockchain when you have a 10 minute period of time. So there's there's a lot of reasons that this thing was set up with the parameters it has on the, at the base layer. Yeah. I'm going to read a, a, a couple quotes here from Lynn Alden's piece, which cannot recommend enough. If you're really curious about the Lightning Network, her piece, A Look at the Lightning Network, is awesome. It's on Beautiful. Swan's blog. It's also on, on lynnalden.com. She sort of summarizes some of what we've been talking about here for the first 15 minutes. She says, many cryptocurrencies that followed in Bitcoin's wake put the cart before the horse. They optimized for throughput and speed on their base layer at the cost of weaker decentralization, auditability, scarcity, and or immutability of the underlying bearer asset. As such, they failed to gain structural adoption as money and rendered their high throughput irrelevant. That's the part that matters at the end. Who gives a fuck if you have high throughput on cuck bucks or monopoly money or nonsense casino token? Um, she also says, in order to create de a decentralized version of Visa, beneath that, you must first create a decentralized version of Fedwire. And along with that, you must first create a decentralized version of digital gold. I think this point is, is just so important. For throughput to matter, for a payments network to matter, the underlying liquidity, the asset that's being moved needs to have a purpose, a use case, and a fit to begin with, right? And that's what Bitcoin presents. Bitcoin fills a hole in, in 21st century monetary land, a very important hole. And then once that hole is filled and people want to accumulate this store of value asset, now there's even a point to having the conversation of how do we move it around? There's another, yeah. um, actually, I was reading the same piece. Surprisingly, we both took a lot of this info from uh, Lynn because she's such a genius. And yeah, also highly recommend that piece. But she made a few points on what we're talking about here, which is uh, in order to increase the number of transactions, you, you're giving up bandwidth, storage requirements, mm -hmm. running a node. I mean, you're pushing this to the point where most people can't do it. It has centralization uh, pressures on the network. And she makes the point, like you said, Dan, if you're going to make something that performs like Visa at the base layer, you basically have to recreate Visa. 
You have to make this thing a very centralized entity, which then completely nullifies the entire reason for its existence, which is a money that the world can use without permission in a censorship resistant way. You've completely negated it. It's also to transition here. You have to think about what place Visa sits in in the current monetary stack. Visa is way, way, way far removed from final settlement. I'll intro this, and then I think this is something to riff on because this is a this is a place I think in discussing Bitcoin that it is actually worth comparing to legacy finance and how monetary systems are built. Just to start here, there's really kind of four layers I'll highlight in today's monetary system. You've got a base layer, which is like central banks. When when Lynn's talking about Fedwire, that's essentially central banks moving money around. Then you have sort of an an intermediary layer. We'll call that commercial banks, financial institutions. Then there's a payments layer. We'll call that layer three, payments networks, clearing houses, settlement systems. And then finally, you get to the application layer, financial products, financial services, your Venmos, your cash apps of the world. So something like Visa is so far removed from bare final settlement of an asset. And I think that's really important to highlight because what Visa is trying to do and what Bitcoin base layer is doing are are on really opposite ends of the monetary spectrum. And what something like Lightning can do also shouldn't be confused with Visa because we are dealing with final settlement on the Lightning network. It's not a debt instrument. It's happening there and then. And that's a key distinction. Once again, maybe we'll shelve that for later in the conversation. Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I was just going to add like even just examples. When we're talking about Fedwire, which is arguably the base of the US system, if you wanted to compare it to something like Bitcoin, there's only a, a few hundred transactions, I believe, a year. And those transactions, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in size. Like They're massive. And I think this is where, when we look at Bitcoin extrapolating out into the future, if Bitcoin is to go to where I think many of the Bitcoin community believe it is going to go, eventually it will be at a point where if I'm, say, buying a house, 300,000, a million bucks or whatever, at that point, yes, I may do something on the base layer because I want that security above all else. Whereas I'm not going to be buying a coffee on the base layer just as if you wouldn't buy a coffee on the base layer of Fedwire. And so yes. more having this understanding that each layer serves a purpose. And as you move up the layers, you get increased speed and efficiency, but at a sacrifice usually of whether it's a little bit of decentralization, whether it's a little bit of, um, uh, what's the other complete mind block? Anyway, um, usually you're going to sacrifice something. And I think that's what we have to be aware of. We're not going to be buying houses on Lightning, but at the same time, uh, we're not going to be buying coffee on the base layer and recognizing the pros and cons to each. And th- this idea of settlement is really important too, because I've got an example just of this week. So I went to a pub for lunch the other day in their FPOS machine, which is what we call our um, you know, bank card transfer in, in Australia, was, was playing up. They ended up charging me twice. I've just logged in now. It was two days ago. Those transactions are still pending. They were Visa transactions. They're still sitting in as pending. So she wouldn't give me a refund based on the fact that there was two transactions there until she said, you're going to have to come back to us once that transaction's been settled and then prove to us that, it, that it's gone through twice. So it's a pain in my ass to have to go back there to, to redeem that. And I've just, it was two days ago, those transactions are still pending on my, on my app. Mm. So like, it's not even that fast. Like the the immediate transaction, the immediate notification that that thing's gone through, but the settlement, like we've highlighted here, is so far removed from the process of that initial transaction that it, yeah. that can be reversed at any time. 
Like I could call my bank and say it's a fraudulent transaction. I'll put a halt on it. So that whole idea of final settlement, like arguably, if if we look at it and we compare it to our current financial system, the other the other thing that we haven't really highlighted is the fact that that Barrett asset transaction proof is when you go to physically withdraw that cash from the bank account, and there's so many claims on those on those dollars for that to be a bearer final settlement we operate within a fractionalized reserve banking system whereby um now there's not even a, a peg it used to be 10 percent mm. as, a, as a as a guide so you would go and put ten hundred dollars into the bank account the the um the the they would basically deem that as a 10 percent reserve and then they could lend out up to 90 percent further value so it's inflating the currency supply so if all of us went to our ATMs and to, to withdraw our cash, the whole banking system would collapse because there's actually not that much physical bearer um, asset underpinning the claims that we have within the banking system. Yeah, I think that, you know, as you're talking about that, kind of an uh, example came to mind, which is I just recently, I've, I've been a subscriber to Real Vision for about seven or eight years. And last year I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm just focusing on Bitcoin. I don't necessarily need Real Vision. Anyway, I completely blanked that I still had my membership and it renewed the other week. And I was just like, God damn it. It's like freaking 100 and what? No, what was it? It was like 599 US. So after it went through on my credit card. Holy shit. That's what they're charging a year. So it was 599 US. And after it renewed on my credit card. Your butthole is getting stretched out, Seb. That's crazy. I split it it with like eight friends. Cancel Rel Paul. (laughs) But um, it's so it goes through 599 US comes through it like I think it was uh, 750 Canadian or saying at the time. And so I caught it on my credit card. I was like, fuck, I forgot to cancel my subscription to it. So then I call up, uh, well, I send them an email and I just said, hey guys, like, unfortunately, I'm not in the position right now that I need to renew it, but I better grab a refund. So they refund me. After we're dealing with the exchange fees, the foreign exchange fees, transaction fees on my credit card, the refund and so on, they initially charged me 750, uh, that, sorry, they initially charged me 819 and they refunded me 750. So you're talking about like, 70 80 dollars you're talking about 10 percent in fees it's so the traditional system because of all of the intermediaries involved we don't necessarily need to go yep. through that right now but we're talking about four or five intermediaries touch that money before yes. it came back into my bank account and each one of those intermediaries is taking a cut it's a very inefficient system mm. it's like it's like anytime you you do a, a transaction buying a house or any kind of settlement like that you really realize how slow this system is. You sit there. I mean, I've been in house closings where it takes eight hours to close because the wire didn't come through because of what you just said, Seb. You have all these intermediaries. All of them have to touch this money and then send it off. And it is extreme. Like people complain about the base layer of Bitcoin being slow. I mean, you can, as long as your transaction fee is good, you you can be fairly confident and good to go in like 20 to 30 minutes. This we're talking about potentially days and weeks. If things get caught up, you have to call three different intermediaries, get this all sorted out. And now you're, you know, your house closing takes two, two, you have to do it two weeks later because of all these wire issues. And I just wanted to point out here that even though the base layer of Bitcoin may not be like lightning fast because of the way it's designed, it's still massively and probably an order of magnitude better than like a wire transfer is as far as speed is concerned. And those, um, just going back to Seb's point with these intermediaries as well, it's like one of the attacks on cash as a, as a, as a system is because there's so many intermediaries scalping fees in the interim every time that changes hands. Where if, if you've got a $50 note and I give it to Josh and he gives it to Dan and he gives it to Seb, we've basically enacted you know three transactions there 
and no one scalped any fees off the top of that. Whereas if we did that in the same financial system and you know, you're taking your 2% for the transaction fee, um, so is Dan um, before it gets to Seb, then that $50 value has actually been eroded. Uh, you know, so the, w- while we're moving towards more and more of a digital, and don't get me wrong, if you're providing a service, I actually see value in a transaction fee. I absolutely do resonate with that. And that's how Bitcoin works. The miners are, pro- are, are providing a service. So this whole idea of, of transactions are like, like being free necessarily, if, if you've got to expend compu- computational power and so forth, absolutely, I'm, I'm fully supportive of that. But that's not the, the point I was, I was trying to make. But um, the attack on cash specifically is more, I think, around that, hey, we're not making any, any, any fees in this transaction. Let's force people into uh, these systems where we can, we can scalp off the top. That's a really good clarification, Daz. Fees make sense when there's a value add, okay? When there's a value add, people should pay, and, and those that are providing value should expect payment. The issue with today's monetary system is that there's a ton of people sifting money off the top that, in my opinion, are adding very little to no value. One thing I want to clarify is We've talked about this, and this is a pretty dense topic. This might be a little bit more 201, but we're at whatever. We're in the thick of it. The way that that the current system works above Fedwire, let's say, just to make it simple, is it's, it's, a, it's a debt-based system. Somebody owes someone. So when you're talking about a pending transaction, Daz, the issue is that within the plumbing, somebody owes someone, right? Let's think about a simple transaction. Let's, let's dole it down here. You buy a coffee. There are, in my, I just wrote down five people involved. There's the, let's say, the credit card holder, the merchant, the acquiring bank, that's the bank that works with the merchant to process the card payment, the issuing bank, that's the bank that, that issued the credit card to the card holder, and then the card association, the organization that manages the credit card network. And that's like at its most simple, that's five people involved. Um, and there's three individuals in there that, are basically all siphoning their cut. Let's say that the average transaction fee in commerce today is two and a half to five percent. That's really significant, man. Before I became a firefighter, I managed a golf course. I remember what our line item was for credit card payments. It was astonishing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin works very differently. Here's a tweet I sent the other day. In Bitcoin, the message is the settlement. There's no debt layer above the settlement layer like the legacy system. And with second layers like Lightning Network, settlement happens instantaneously, a huge upgrade to 21st century payments. We are going to get into Lightning and how it works, but it, it's a lot different than a credit card. It may work just as fast and, you, and the micropayments can be even smaller, but it's immediate and final settlement of a digital sound bearer asset. Can you say freaking upgrade? Now, one clarification before I pass the baton here, it's not as though there's not going to be any debt-based layering on Bitcoin. There is going to be responsible banking and there are going to be intermediaries, but they're going to be held to greater account because they are going to have to provide value because there is there is a way. There will be ways. There will and, and these manners will continue to expand and there'll be ingenuity that's creating different different ways to settle. There, there will be a way to do it at very low cost. So if you're going to charge something, you're going to have to provide something. It's not just going to be the water that we swim in in Bitcoin commerce. The massive difference too is going to be like right now we have four, it's an oligopoly in credit cards, right? There's four major companies and their fees can remain higher than they potentially would be with more competition because these companies have 
kind of forged their way a moat. Uh, kind of like Warren Buffett talks about when you're going to invest in something, make sure you invest in something with a moat. Well, these credit card companies have one hell of a moat and they can charge two and a half to 5% because they can basically price fix. The difference here is that Lightning is also an open protocol, just like Bitcoin. And there's like four implementations of mm. it right now. And anyone and everyone is allowed to compete on it. And so this is a commodity, the price of a transaction. It will be forced down as companies are forced to compete with each other on top of it because there is no way to create yes. a moat in this kind of a, a situation. And I think that's an important thing to uh, make sure people understand. Go ahead, Sam. I was going to say as well, recently I read this book and this book blew my mind. I don't necessarily agree with the reader's um, kind of the end thesis, but he brought up a really good point. So this book's called Sacred Economics by a guy called Charles Eisenstein. And one of the things he discusses in this book, which I thought was incredible, is the fact that when you have a debt-based system, you, you need growth. If you do not get growth, the system naturally collapses. And so this is why our government targets GDP growth. Now, the problem with this is, and um, Jeff Booth talks a lot about this, is we live in a deflationary world. Prices are always declining, or should be naturally declining because technology advances and it's trying to get more for less. And so the problem with this is, if we need growth, yet prices are declining, well, then that means that in order to achieve this growth, we have to continually monetize everything. And so exactly to Daz's point, transaction fees were cash doesn't have transaction fees. Now we need to, because GDP is denominated in dollars, we need to make that transaction visible on the dollar network. So we now need to turn that into a digital payment. There needs to be someone taking a cut. We need to be able to turn all of these exchanges that were once, whether it was just a, a gift, whether it was something you were being altruistic, you need to be able to monetize these transactions in order to have them included underneath the GDP framework. And that's where something like Bitcoin, when you have a fixed supply of money, all of a sudden it aligns with our inherently deflationary world where prices should be declining and it incentivizes us to be very cautious when it comes to debt consumption because if prices are declining and we cannot necessarily generate generate as much return as we did previously then that means if we take on debt we're going to quickly become overburdened in debt mm. well before we move on to actually talking about how bitcoin works i just want to point out not bitcoin i'm sorry how lightning works i just want to point out one use case for removing these intermediaries, which Lightning Network has effectively done, that is opened up because of this. Uh, Fountain is a really cool podca podcast 2.0 app. You can listen to your favorite podcast, get paid in very small payments. We're talking like cents throughout the listening to this entire podcast. You can thumbs up and you can boost, give them 10 sats for something that you appreciated or thought was good during the podcast. All of these very small microtransactions are something that is just not possible with the traditional market, like with the uh, credit card companies because of their fees and because of their minimums. So this opens up an entire gamut of different ways that you can reward content creators and kind of like the way uh, I think Lynn in that piece also talked about how when the smartphone was invented in 2007, you could have never predicted that Uber was going to overturn taxis five yes. to 10 years later, right? That's where we're at in the point at the point we're at with lightning right now it's pretty obvious that transactions being small and fast is great but we really can't predict what exactly that's going to change in the near future 5 years from now how who's going to invent something incredibly cool that can't be done right now because of the rails and because of the way they're slow and expensive there's going to be a lot of innovation most of it unpredictable but all of it's going to be great and this is um yeah it's it's a really good point man because these micropayments where our, our sort of billing systems and everything for services that we use tend to work on some sort of payment term, typically like a monthly bill for a 
phone service, um, energy bills, all that sort of thing. So in Australia for a long time there, we had quarterly energy bills. So as a wage earner, that was like a debt that was going to come. And it was quite a hefty chunk. If you were living pay to pay, it's quite a hefty chunk to come up with um, when they were just trying to minimize costs for sending meter readers out to go and you know read these energy bills. So what these micropayments are going to enable is for humans to navigate where they use things and pay for value for value at the time of usage rather than accumulating more sort of these debt-based sort of systems for, for billing services. So rather than you, you know, on the 15th of every month getting a big stack of bills where you're like, holy shit, as a, as a wage earner or as a single mom or as a, you know, single income, you're panicking how you're going to pay for these bills that you've accumulated over without real-time tether to your usage particularly with energy. And I think this is a really um, critical point as we're navigating this, where energy prices are are starting to really, really soar globally. Um, Micropayments enable, and there's absolutely projects working on this right now, integrating like lightning services for real-time payments of energy. So basically you are paying per minute for your energy usage. So you can have a real-time navigation around what is this actually costing me now? Of looking at my house, you know, you might get an alert. You might have it a, a a threshold to say, "Holy shit, mate! You're chewing through five cents a minute at the moment with your bill," which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you extrapolate that out at your current trajectory, this might cost you three hundred dollars this this month. You know, so right. all of a sudden you're going to be able to go, "Holy shit! How many air conditioners have I got on right now, kids? Like, turn off your air conditioners. You're not in your rooms. Like, all of these sort of things. So it's going to enable." a lot better navigation as humans around how we interact with the world and, and where we're actually using these services. Um, and I think it's just a really, really understated, um, and, and it just that's only enabled through our frictionless ability to transfer payments at scale um, for, for low cost. So if I can just highlight back to how those systems sort of compare with the traditional sort of banking system and the exchange rates and transferring of, of payments there, it's typically done as a percentage of the of the value that is transferred. So if you transfer, you know, $100 and it's a 7% fee, it's going to cost you $7 to transfer um, that value across. Whereas with the Bitcoin base layer, it's more about the data. We don't give a shit how much value you're actually sending from one to another. It's about the data that you're taking up in that block space. So it doesn't matter if I send $10 or I send a million dollars. If the data is the same, the fee is going to be the same. And we'll, we'll, I'll probably leave it there. I won't dig into because the, um, the Lightning Network does actually, you know, there's there's a different fee structure on the Lightning Network. So we might sort of, um, if anyone's got anything else, we might start to touch base on how the Lightning Network works and then we can talk about fee structures and all that sort of stuff. Mm, I, I like it. Where to start? Should we start with just a basic description of how Lightning works? And I guess but before we even do that, let me just say to clarify The beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that, and I think I said this in our last episode, because of the unchangeability and the predictability of the base layer, these what what's being built on Bitcoin has the potential to change everything. Kind of like you said, Josh, the use cases and 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 applications of Bitcoin are even hard to predict for a hardcore Bitcoiner because it's open source and programmable. That base layer, the game theory and how it's designed indicates it's probably not going to change. It's a set of Legos or it's a ruler that all these other carpenters can work off of and create these second layers. So that's what Lightning is. It it wasn't here when Bitcoin started. Somebody thought up the Lightning protocol, 
unleashed it into the wild and it just happens to be the one that's proliferated the most. It's not the only second layer in existence and it won't be the only second layer into perpetuity. We don't even know if it'll assuredly be the one that wins out long term, but it's here and it works. And I think maybe to start, I'll give this to, to Seb or Daz if you guys are ready to to kind of give a description for someone that has no clue how lightning works and how it increases throughput and accomplishes some of the things we've hinted at. What is the lightning network? So there's there's probably a couple of angles we should frame up with this. Um, as a as a lightning node operator is one thing, and as a lightning wallet in interaction, that's that's a, a separate thing. So I might just start with framing up how the lightning network works. And the probably easiest way for us to demonstrate that is like say, okay, Dan and Josh, you just work together all the time. You spend a lot of time together, and say, you know, you're always getting smoke on lunch together, and you've or you go into the pub. And it's always around, I'll just get the coffee today. I'll get lunch today. I'll buy dinner. Beers are on me. And you're always paying each other back. So one way you may choose to think about this is to open up a lightning channel with yourselves, right? So the, the, um, the, this, and this gets probably beyond the beginner's level, like going to this, but it's, it's, it's just important to highlight the, I guess, the infrastructure and the architecture behind how these things work. So Dan and Josh are going to open up a lightning channel together. Basically, what that means is they pre-sign an on-chain transaction together. They, they're coordinating together. They know each other, right? And we say, we're going to open up a channel. Dan initiates it and he say, okay, we're going to open this up with very loft, very big big fee, right? Let's say we're going to open up one Bitcoin uh, channel between us. Dan initiates that. He funds it with one Bitcoin. He trusts Josh. Josh, in a separate transaction, sends him the other half of a Bitcoin. And then basically, Dan pushes half of the Bitcoin over to Josh's side. So what we've basically got is a funded channel with liquidity on both sides. So we've got half a Bitcoin on each side. Now that we've opened up that channel between us, this is existing now on the second layer. It's existing on Bitcoin. So the only thing that the base chain sees is that you've opened up a channel and you've both pre-signed a message in there, which is important to highlight and I'll loop back um, later on. You've both pre-signed a message there that any one of you can initiate a channel closure. So we've opened up a channel. We've got half a Bitcoin on each side. Now what happens is using that Lightning protocol, you guys can enact as, think of it like an abacus. You, Dan's got an abacus and half the liquidity is on, on his side and on the other half of that abacus is Josh's liquidity. So when you guys initiate a transaction, Josh buys the coffee today, right? Dan says, don't worry, mate, I'll send you back some sats. So we're going to flip over one of the beads on the abacus over to Josh's side. So the channel liquidity is still, the balance is the same for the channel, but now we've just got more of those beads sitting over in Josh's side. And if this goes on, Dan's always buying the coffee and we're always flicking beads back over to Josh's side. Later on, if we choose to close that channel down, it basically is pre-signed. It goes back to the base layer and whatever the balance was at the time, gets pushed back to the base layer protocol so we know that the stack of that one Bitcoin liquidity that we open up on that channel, the larger side of that stack is on Josh's side and it goes back to Josh's um, address that he initiated. Does that make it, sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's a great analogy for Josh and I particularly because we're both especially gifted at flicking beads. Wouldn't you agree? Josh, yeah, that's, sure. a, that's a strength It just of takes mine. the right frequency, you know? You just got to up and down until you find the right one. Now we'll go, we'll go, uh, if I can, just before we circle back, we'll just go one layer deeper as well. And now say 
Josh and Seb have a relationship. Dan doesn't know Seb, but Josh and Seb have a relationship, a similar relationship. They, they flick each other's beads. Yep, I'm tracking. They flick yep. each other's beads all the time. <laughs> and Dan doesn't want a part of it because he's a bit jealous. He so, likes to watch, though. He wants to watch the beads. <laughs> Josh, Josh and Seb open up a, a channel with themselves. They've got liquidity and say, we all go out for beers, right? And liquidity. then Seb ends up... Yep. Seb ends up buying a, a, a whole heap of beers and at the end of the night, it's like, hey, you know what, guys? You owe us $30 cuck bucks equivalent. So Dan doesn't have to open up a channel with Seb, but through routing, through the Lightning Network, basically all we need is Seb's address and Dan needs to have a route through to Seb. And it just so happens we have a route. It's through Josh. So Dan and Josh have a channel together. Josh and Seb have a channel together. Seb, Dan wants to send Seb sats. It goes and routes through Josh's node. So it goes from Dan to Josh to Seb. And then Josh as the intermediary for his trouble of providing liquidity to that channel, providing the the ability to transfer payment, he might scalp a little payment value for value out, out of the side um, as, a, as a routing fee to route through him to somebody else. So then when you start to extrapolate that out globally, there is a whole network of very well-connected yes. nodes with very well-connected channels with a lot of liquidity between various service providers. And that's where the difference lies between you having to operate a channel and you actually just being able to use the Lightning Network. I have personally used Lightning, open up Lightning channels because I wanted just to experience. Yep. But for me to maintain them as a, I don't have a high use case throughput. Uh, I don't really have a need to have a channel, but I use the Lightning Network all the time. So I don't need to necessarily run a channel. I just need to use a wallet that's got very well connected liquidity, such as like Wallet of Satoshi as, a, as an example. It's a very well connected node with a lot of well connected channels. So anywhere that I want to send a lightning payment, I'm basically routing through this network of channels now to basically get to the end user. And it doesn't matter if the person I want to send funds to is on Wallet of Satoshi or Moon Wallet or any of these other lightning service providers. I'm theoretically, the network is that huge now that I can find a route through that connection and that's where i'm paying fees I'll, I'll probably just throw it out seb's got his thing up for a while there sorry seb oh no sweat at all i was yeah. just going to add one kind of important point which is the fact that when we're talking about the lightning network because it doesn't necessarily operate on the proof of work mining system that the bitcoin base layer operates on this is what allows it to have much cheaper fees and so to highlight that mm. what exactly what daz is talking about if we're operating on the base layer we're operating on bitcoin those fees range, depending on uh, any time throughout the year, from 50 cents or 10, well, I'd say probably 10, 15 cents, all the way up to 5, 10, 15 bucks. And so if you wanted to go and buy coffee, let's just say Josh and Dan in the example, over the next month have 20, 30, let's just say 30 transactions between the two of them. Well, if they're a dollar a transaction, we're talking about $30 in transaction fees. Whereas when we're talking about, if you move that, that Bitcoin off the main layer into Lightning, and then perform those transactions on Lightning over the month and then bring it back to the, the base layer again, all of a sudden those 30 transactions, when we're talking about Lightning, we're talking about a couple sats. We're talking about like a fraction of a cent. So that in total may have cost, let's just say, five cents to do those, perform those 30 transactions instead of paying that $30. So this is where for smaller transactions, uh, and that's obviously dependent on what you feel comfortable with, but I'd say anything below a couple hundred bucks, uh, if you're performing those transactions on Lightning, you're saving yourself a lot of fees, a lot of fees. Yeah, it's really, really good point. So I always liken it to 
you use a Lightning Network like you would a wallet, like your, your your everyday cash system. So, you know, I'm not buying coffee. I'm not buying bread. I'm not buying, you know, everyday items on the Bitcoin base layer because the fees over time would just be too cost prohibitive for me to do it. So I move funds into Lightning and I use those as a smaller, you know, and we'll talk about the trade-offs in a minute um, of what we're trading off when we actually move to that second layer because they're absolutely trade-offs. But what we're trying to do is just minimize um, minimize the transaction, the friction between for smaller payments. And I don't need it on the base layer. I don't need to have immutability necessarily for my coffee transaction. I just need to know, we just need to be comfortable in that transaction between the sender and the receiver that that has been enacted. And the other thing to highlight, which is, in, is an important um, uh, feature of the Lightning Network, is I mentioned before Dan and Josh opened this channel up. None of those microtransactions make their way back down to the base layer. It's only so there's a lot more privacy enhancement around that, around those individual transactions. What money moved when and where sits on that second layer and it never makes its way, that history never makes its way back down to the base layer. So we've spoken about the base layer being sort of pseudonymous. They're immutable. Nobody knows the address unless you give up that privacy yourself. But all of those transactions are on the blockchain for anybody to see forever. So if you want a little bit more privacy in your transaction, you can step up into those second layers, use that lightning network because those transactions are never going to be back down onto the base layer. The only thing that gets recorded back to the base layer is the final settlement when you choose to withdraw back to the base chain, if that makes yeah. sense. So there's three advantages here in my, uh, well, there's, tr so you have trust because everything eventually on lightning once it's all settled back and forth, if you don't trust the other character, or he doesn't trust you, you can bring this back to the Bitcoin blockchain. You can have it settled finally there. So that's a huge plus here. You, you're basically leaning on Bitcoin itself, the base layer for all of the trust that you need to operate lightning. And then you're gaining speed and you're gaining instant liquidity. This means yeah. that, like Dan mentioned earlier, this is the physical Bitcoin moving to the other party right now. There's no intermediary and there's no debt that needs to be held by one party or the other and by debt without debt there's even less trust involved because you don't have to trust that that other person is going to produce the bitcoin they say they have they've actually physically moved it the abacus at every node on the way there and all the way back has moved those pieces on the way up and on the way back and then the other thing was which you just mentioned daz which which is privacy and this might be going a little bit deeper than we want to for this but each one of the nodes along the hop from me to Daz with say 20 different intermediaries in between. They use something called onion routing, which means they don't know, the intermediaries don't know where this transaction came from and they don't know inevitably where it's going to lead. So it's blind all the way from me and all the way back to me. So there's a, I mean, there's a lot to gain from this uh, and using it on this tertiary layer. Can I just, can I just give a really good example of that onion routing and how that sure. works? So. Say we're going to go through through ourselves again. So I'm going to pay to Dan. Dan will pay to Josh. Josh will route. Sorry, I should say routing, not payment. So I want to send a, a payment through to Seb, but I've got to hop through Dan and Josh before I get to Seb through that routing network. So when I initiate that transaction, I've got Seb's address. It then goes and scans for the most efficient route. I might be optimizing for time or I might be optimizing for fee, and that's all dependent on the, on the architecture of the wallet, right? But basically what then happens is I'm signing a transaction um, and I'm putting it in an envelope. And then Dan's going to have, uh, sorry, for Josh's layer, is going to 
put it in another envelope and then Dan's going to put it in another envelope. So there's a couple of layers of envelopes here. So Dan can't see that I want to send it to Seb. So all Dan gets is a trend, is an envelope that says, send some money to, to Josh and you can scalp a little fee on the way. So Dan just gets his envelope that says, huh, send Josh one Bitcoin. So he opens up that envelope, he scalps his fee and he sends it on to, on to Josh. And then Josh just gets this envelope and says, he doesn't know it come from Daz. But Josh gets this envelope to, that says then, oh, I've got to send some money to, to Seb. So he's got that envelope and he sends it on. Then Seb finally gets it and he says, oh, I've got uh, a history here and I'm going to pull it out. He actually knows it's come from me, but that's that's another just layer of, sub, of obscurities through that transfer so that it, nobody actually knows, like Dan can't see the destination because all he's getting is the next instruction of where he needs to send his liquidity, if yeah. that makes sense. So some built-in privacy. Not perfect on Lightning, but I think improved over the base layer. And I think it's worth saying, back to the open source programmability of Bitcoin, Lightning is a privacy upgrade over the base layer, and we will continue. We are seeing things like Arc, which we talked about recently. We're seeing that these, these layers that are going to be built, they're going to quickly and efficiently improve fungibility and privacy. To wrap a little bit of this for someone that that is confused, for someone that's maybe studied a little bit, this has been, been a, an enlightening 20 minutes for someone else, they might be like, what the hell is going on here? Because it took, did take me a little bit of time to digest what the fuck's going on with Lightning. I want to say a couple things to that sort of listener. First of all, you don't have to understand the inner workings of systems for us to say that those systems work. Let's even take the payment rails you use. When you execute a transaction on Venmo? Do you really know what's happening in the background to where Chase and Bank of America settle? You don't. And there's a ton of shit that happens when you use Venmo. You have no idea. When you stream a video on Netflix, you don't know what's going on on the back end with the internet, but you get a wonderful product with some popcorn next to your wife on a Friday night. The same thing is true here with the Lightning Network. It works. It's working. Josh, you highlighted some great summary points. It's trusted instant payments with unlimited throughput, essentially, that are cheap. And it has one other killer application, which I think we would be remiss not to highlight, and that's payment network inclusion, gentlemen, because a huge percent of the world is unbanked. And open source software with apps built on it, making use of Lightning, gives people in the world payment capability that would never have payment capability before. This is what I love about Lynn's work, is she really helps first world folks zoom out of their own monetary privilege and start asking some basic questions like how would you reliably and cheaply send $97 back to your parents in Bolivia let's say if you're a podcaster in Egypt who's blowing up how do you make money these are answers that people have built solutions to but bitcoin is a globally distributed distributed increasingly liquid network that now has payments capability that's a huge upgrade to the micropayments thing we're no longer talking about cents. We're talking about thousands of a cent and, and unlocking all sorts of, of payment empowering applications. So this does have an inclusion component. And that's the, the beauty of Bitcoin that's much different than the, the walled garden that is 21st century banking. Just because you have Venmo and Cash App and stuff that sounds like lightning to you doesn't mean other people don't or, or that other people do. So you, you have to realize how radically inclusive this is on, on the global stage. One other thing, um, just really quick. It's it's also possible to send messages. Um, you could use this for uh, 
Well, basically, like if you, something like you imagine, like there's people in a third world country that don't have a bank account. There's also people that have all of their messages snoop, sniffed through by the dictatorial regime who cannot necessarily send secure messages to somebody outside of their country or even within their country. Um, there's applications. One of them is called Zion, which is uh, a decentralized social network that's being built on uh, Lightning as well. So there's just other um, human interest technologies that are being built on this that can be good for the world other than just a payments network. And whichever one um, pays the fees and actually makes the most sense is the one that will win because the economics will end up shaking out what doesn't make sense on this and what does. But I think it's important to understand that this protocol has the ability to carry other things than just uh, Bitcoin necessarily. Yeah, I wanted to make one good point or two points actually that you kind of brought up, Dan, which is like Bitcoin, for those that are kind of unfamiliar with kind of the memes around Bitcoin, one of the key tenets of Bitcoin is don't trust, verify. And Dan brings up this amazing point, which is the fact that when it comes to Bitcoin, because it is open source, if we have the interest, anyone is able to dig in to the functionality of Bitcoin. And like the Lightning Network, we've spent between the four of us countless hours digging into this stuff. And of course, the, the, the deeper understanding of it is probably still over my head, but being able to dig into that and knowing that we can dig into that allows us to have a system which anyone is able to verify if they feel the need to or if they or, or the desire. Whereas our current system lives on a don't verify trust. We have to trust that the system has our best interests at heart and that the system is showing countless times, like in Canada, where they'll freeze people's funds during the trucker rally or so on, where the system is not necessarily listening to the individuals or supporting the individuals and freedom and rights usually slip by the wayside. And then the other final point that I wanted to mention, which is as we're talking about earlier, we mentioned Bitcoin has around uh, a transaction speed of around seven transactions per second. But when we're talking about um, Lightning, all of a sudden you've got to realize that one Bitcoin transaction, which could be Dan and Josh opening a channel on the Lightning Network, could encompass thousands of transactions on the Lightning Network and so although the main layer, the base layer of Bitcoin may only see one transaction, when people say, well, Bitcoin is only able to process seven transactions per second, we're only talking about the base layer. Those transactions can have many hundreds, if not millions of transactions above that that we're not seeing. So Bitcoin is able to reach a much broader market just through other technologies built on top, of it, which is what we're trying to kind of explain. And we've touched on a couple of times now this this notion around the difference between Bitcoin the asset and Bitcoin the network. And for my mind, Bitcoin the network is the really global shift in thinking. So Bitcoin the network is the payment rails that enable us to transfer value. Bitcoin the asset is the dollar denominated thing that experiences volatility. And I think from a global adoption perspective, the it's the asset that scares people off because of that volatility you know, the, the fluctuations in the market price, whereas the real value in my mind is the network, is these layers getting built on top of it. And, um, you know, like like Dan said before, it's it's banking the unbanked. Uh, and that just sounds like a fluffy bit of a few words, but it, it is such a, a profound notion that like all you need now uh, is access to a mobile phone and internet connection and you can transfer digital bearer asset finality settlement value transfers globally and i've got a couple of examples of this so i was able to one day daniel prince was in a coffee shop in in the uk and he throws up a lightning network and says hey there's some random people walked into this coffee shop who's now accepting lightning payments he put up a qr code on twitter and he put it out there and he said anyone want to shout this couple a coffee 
and I just happened to be the first to see it. You know, I was just scrolling through, doom scrolling through Twitter, and I transferred, I think it was the equivalent of $5 Australian instantaneously and for near free. It was less than a cent of, of transaction um, fee. It was a couple of sats fee for me to transfer a coffee from the from Australia all the way to the UK. And like that doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you've ever tried to move value across borders before, that is that was impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Only a short short couple of years ago. And like you still wouldn't be able to do it today, like uh, through the the Swift network. So you've got to route through so many hops in the transaction fees, exchange fees, foreign exchange fees are so cumbersome that it it becomes you, you will never ever send five dollars worth of value from Australia to the UK because the transaction fees alone are completely going to make that not worthwhile. And where the value of that really rings true is in countries like El Salvador and in Tonga. Both, you know, there's a politician in Tonga as well, um, Lord Fushitua, who's been flagging that this is going to change the way that small countries like this operate Absolutely. because their GDP, their bottom line is so dependent on remittances. So these these impoverished sort of countries that don't have a lot of um, infrastructure, resources, um, manufacturing, all that sort of, they don't have anything to export. So what they export is their people. You know, they their kids grow up, they save up their money, they send their kids like from Tonga, they send them to Australia. They come to Australia to get schooled, they go to university, try and get good jobs, and then most of their GDP back in Tonga is through remittances mm. from the family members who were ac- exported, the talent that was exported, sending money back home. Now, when you've got these extractive layers in between, that's eroding the value transfer and what it's done for El Salvador is increased. I don't know the figures off the top of my head, but it's inc- improved their bottom line GDP by large percentage points, purely based on the fact that if I'm sending $100 worth of value from the States to $100 um, back to the El Salvador, we're actually seeing the majority of that $100 landing in El Salvador for productive use, rather than Western Union, as an example, standing in the middle, who can extract fees up to upwards of 30%. So that $100... You're paying $30 in transaction fees, let alone the friction that then exists for that person to be able to physically receive it. They've got to most of the time get on a bus, travel four hours to their local Western Union branch, only to be met with gangs on the outside saying, hey, we know what you're here for. You're going to be getting some money. Look, we won't stab you. Just give us 10 bucks worth of that. So now all of a sudden that $100 is now only worth 60 So that productive <clears throat> capacity then been diminished by 40% purely based on the fact that we just wanted to simply transfer value from one place to another across the globe. Ridiculous. I was just going to yes. I was going to add quickly which is we've just actually Daz and myself we've just been writing a course and it touches on Tonga. And Tonga is one of the highest remittances in the world. So they're 46% of their GDP comes from remittances. And so if you've got 46% of your GDP coming from remittances and the Western Union fee to send money back to Tonga is I think it's something like 22% after you account for exchange uh, exchange rate transaction fees and so on. And so let's just say it's, I don't know, 50% remittance fees with a 20%, uh, um, sorry, 50% uh, of GDP is from remittances, 20% fee. That means that you can increase GDP by 10% a year just by- Don't do public math. Don't do public math. Yeah. It's insane, though. That's, That's crazy. Insane. It's crazy the implications for for the for that sort of individual 100%. and family. They would put, they would put, Even for the first the world, if you think countries. about, yeah, when you think about the transfer of say dollars from here to pounds in Britain, 
if you had to, if you were deciding to send it in Bitcoin, have to sell and they have to sell the Bitcoin, there's a taxable event going on for probably both parties. In the situation where what Mahler's has done with Strike, it's an instant transmission into Bitcoin, moving to whatever other country you're sending it to, transferring it back into the local currency. And it happens so fast that, as you said, Daz, we're talking about the Bitcoin network versus the Bitcoin um, itself. You're not taking any real exchange risk there because you've only it's only sitting on the network for like one second. There's not going to be any real movement in that one second. And you're also avoiding these fees because Bitcoin is looked at as a commodity. If you hold it and you sell it, you have to pay taxes on it. So you're avoiding two different problems, even for people in the first world, not to mention all of the myriad of huge improvements this is for avoiding Western Union in the third world. Guys, I'm, I'm sure all of us will agree that when you start studying Bitcoin, you realize how muddy the current waters are financially. Like there, there's so much friction in the 21st century with money. It's crazy. And here comes Bitcoin. And we were talking about this with Tour de Meester recently, just a timing and technology match. That's really what, what Bitcoin is. It's, it's a wonderful technology that works great. And the timing is perfect for, us arri- for its arrival because we live in this overwhelmingly friction-filled 21st century monetary environment. There's 180 fucking fragmented fiat currencies. Here comes Bitcoin. It's frictionless money. Now with Lightning, it's instantaneous. There is such an obvious need for, for a digitally native, interoperable, trustless global value transfer protocol. And that's what Bitcoin is. And now it's doing it at the speed of light at, in any denomination you want, big or small. And Josh, your point about, and Daz, you too, about this asset versus the network, you don't even need to hold Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an increasingly liquid asset that trades in virtually all large currency pairs. It allows someone, as you said, Josh, to use the payments aspect of the Lightning Network quite separately from using Bitcoin, the the volatile asset. And, And it can serve as a fast settlement system to move dollars and other fiat currencies using Bitcoin liquidity, which is now global. And, and rolling downhill. It, it does so many things. Remittances, it's the new 21st century currency exchange, bye-bye currency exchanges, no need for you anymore. This is all happening without anyone in the middle for way, way cheaper. And once you start to see all this stuff we're unpacking, gentlemen, you just realize it's only a fucking matter of time. It's so much better. It's such a dramatic upgrade. As Booth says, this is, this is a 10x plus upgrade. It's only a matter of time before the blinking light of utility draws people in like flies to a light because it works so much better, even for people that don't want to hold Bitcoin. That's the crazy part. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's such an understated point. And I think like, um, this is where some like Bitcoiners within, especially if you spend some time on Twitter, you can get embroiled in, in a little bit of toxicity around, um, you know, and it comes from a place of privilege. So, if you're a Bitcoin maxi in the States, you absolutely cannot see value in anything other than than Bitcoin. But in some of these impoverished countries, they can't afford a, the, the short-term volatility of Bitcoin. So we're always advocating for the fact that you treat Bitcoin like your long-term savings account. But we're not asking you to marry Bitcoin. We're just asking that people understand the network and the fundamental so and the payment rails and what that's enabling for these impoverished countries that live in the hyperinflationary world, you jump onto the Bitcoin network in order to transfer your value and you hop off and you put that in whatever you need to in order to pay your bills and buy your bread and buy your milk. Because those those further rails for you to be able to do that, they're not there yet. 
I think it's a matter of time before they are globally accepted as, you know, like El Salvador's done. They've started to basically mandate the fact that you must accept Bitcoin if people want to pay in Bitcoin. You ha- and I don't know, I don't necessarily agree with mandates or anything like that, but it's just to highlight that eventually, as the hardest money that's ever been invented, people will want to accept it, but we're not there yet. So I've got no issue with, you know, um, what I take issue with, with uh, and we can briefly touch on stable coins, yeah. okay? I've got issue with stable coins where they're issued and the fact that there's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done around highlighting the risks that people do take when they do use stable coins. Um, The fact that there's a a centralized issuer. We're going back to this system of of centralized issuance and this trust system that you've got to put in that centralized entity. However, there is absolutely a use case for stable coins as a relative stance between where, where you're coming from and your financial privilege. So if you're in Nigeria and you're experiencing hyperinflation of your base currency, what you're forced to use, and the US dollar is the US dollar stablecoin is something that you can use in order to transact value in the short term that's less extractive than the hyperinflationary currency you're experiencing, there is absolutely a use case. And I think we just need to be a little bit more open-minded on the blinders that we sometimes have with Bitcoin only, Bitcoin only, Bitcoin only. Because if, if all you make is $10 a week and that's your whole family's livelihood, yep. you're not going to be able to um, you know, put up with the short-term, the short-term volatility of Bitcoin to stack and use that whole $10 worth of, worth of value in Bitcoin over that short term. But it's more about the education around that's going to protect your value into the future. If you do have that $1 spare, you are way better off to stack that over a long time in Bitcoin. But absolutely, you're going to need to jump in and off those payment rails in order to satisfy your immediate need of feeding your family. Daz, I, I think you make a great point. And I want to I wanna add two things. The first one is that if you're investing in a protocol, that your main argument for that protocol existing and the underlying asset that's providing liquidity existing is that let's say it moves fiat collateralized stable coins. Be careful. That doesn't this doesn't mean that fiat collateralized stable coins are evil or bad. I get the use case, but they're going to go to the best, cheapest, most reliable bidder, okay? And so what's working now on Ethereum or Tron might be working on something completely different in the future. So even in even in this even as we look through this lens of stable coins, Ask yourself, what's the staying power of the protocol you're investing on? I bring this up because we're not going to have time in this episode to go deep on these other protocols, but like Taro is built on the Lightning Network. It was built by Lightning Labs, and it can be used to move other types of assets using Bitcoin, right? Like USD collateralized stable coins. So Bitcoin is, you know, if if, it's going to be around for a long time, it's going to be reliable, it's going to be robust, and it could start eating a lot of these other crypto use cases. So if you are someone that's interested in investing in the underlying asset of the protocol, I do strongly agree with Lynn's words, which we, we hinted at earlier from her piece, which is essentially that store of value and actual fundamental use case of the base layer bearer asset in the protocol sort of does precede medium of exchange. Like there has to be a reason to want to move the money. Right now, there is reliability in the base layer of legacy system, that being treasuries and 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 everything that makes up, you know, the base layer of 21st century finance. That's why people want USD or USD stable coins. 
Um, but I think we're just going to increasingly see as time goes on, in my opinion, you're going to see people wanting the major fiat currencies and wanting Bitcoin because these are things that actually solve real problems and are reliable. And I do think Bitcoin will continue to, to likely subsume more of these, these external applications. We started to see this with ordinals. We could see this with stable coins. That's just my take at this point. I absolutely think it's only a matter of time before a stable coin will be issued on, on Bitcoin. And I think that's why it's so important to highlight that at the moment, these stable coins are not decentralized. They, they're decentralized in name only, and the protocols that they're built upon are decentralized in name yeah. only. So you are not only taking an inherent amount of risk in the issuer of that stable coin, but you're also taking an inherent amount of risk on the, on the um, networks that they're built upon. Um, and like I said, I think it, you know, Bitcoin, we've said many times on this pod that like Bitcoin is the <laughs> fundamental underlying protocol upon which everything else will be built. And it's only a matter of time before a stable coin is built upon, upon, um, uh, a Bitcoin protocol based protocol. And it's probably a good segue guys, if you want to jump into sidechains and so forth. So that's. A lot of the use cases for other sort of digital assets can and do live on sidechains. So um, Liquid is a good example of this. Now, I'm not going to pretend I'm a Liquid um, expert in, in any stretch of the imagination, but basically what these sidechains are, are kind of built upon in parallel with Bitcoin. So it's not necessarily a layer on top of Bitcoin, but very much a parallel layer of Bitcoin. And the sort of premise behind this is there may be a use case whereby you might have some other sort of digital asset that you want to trade in, right? So one, one of these things, um, so for Liquid, for example, I liken it to, or my understanding anyway, is I liken it to like a, a, a cloak room at a, at a club or something like that. You've got a big heavy jacket on, you're going into the club, you go to the cloak room, they issue you a stub for your cloak, you go and check your cloak in. Now, inside that club, we might be, you know, for whatever reason, we might want to swap over those stubs, but basically you're checking your claim of Bitcoin. You're checking your Bitcoin at the door. They hand you another stub for another claim to something else. And this could have a myriad of different use cases, right? And this is not to talk about shitcoinery necessarily, like, um, you know, tokens and that sort of thing, but there are other assets that you might might want to check in at the door. And Fetty's is another mm. good example I'll talk about in a second around how this how this sort of concept works but on the way back out i just hand my stub back in i'll get my bitcoin so that's theoretically how a side chain kind of works and my understanding around how how fetty might work as well so there's this other protocol which is very much in its infancy starting to starting to get a bit of traction around federations so how they are sort of posed to work is that if you don't necessarily one one use case is you don't necessarily want to hold your keys and i don't want to get bogged down into a custody discussion with um covered that in a previous episode but um if you're not necessarily comfortable holding your keys you can enter into these federated mints where you put a bit of trust in your network of people so say again us four people yep. here i'm not very technically minded so i might you know put a bit of trust in dan josh and said to run this federation and manage my assets but this this e-cash um is is another example of this i'm going to check my bitcoin at the door then i get an equivalent e-cash because i'm in this federated mint so i'm putting an inherent level of trust in this mint and how it works yep. but again it's like obscuring our transactions we can settle transactions within our little community and it's gonna coming back to sort of that lightning um aspect as uh example that i used earlier with the abacus 
when I check back out, if my balance when I entered that mint is the same as, as when I'm checking back out, I can check my Bitcoin back out onto the base chain. So these are the sort of things that are also starting to get built on on side chains. So like going back to the liquid example, that's where a stable coin could potentially be built on as a, as a, as a side chain. You check your Bitcoin in on the mm. way in, you go in, you, you, you transfer it to another asset, you're going to transfer in that asset and whatever the Bitcoin den- denominated value is, and this is the paradigm shift, like what is that worth now in Bitcoin terms on my way back out, I hand my stub back yeah. in and I get you know, whatever I, that value is worth on the way back out. And that's the easiest way I can sort of the, think when I wanted to just, when, one, one The way you described thing. that, it made me, sorry, just immediate, immediately, I think the easier way for people to think about it is just going to a casino. Like you bring your cash, you trade it for chips, and then there's a, so the federation is made out of 11 or 15 different companies, whereas, and 11 of them have to sign. So you have this trade-off there between, uh, obviously, you don't have to trust each one of those individuals, but you can trust that 11 out of the 15 of them are going to be honest. So there, you are giving up a layer of security from Bitcoin, but you're also in a federation that has to have a whole lot of bad actors for them to steal from you. Um, and the other, the other thing, yep. just as an aside on Liquid before we move on from it, it is actually another functioning blockchain, but it is operating at a much faster speed. I believe it's one minute blocks that are in Liquid. For, so once you lock up that money into that multi-sig wallet, they issue these tokens, the casino chips that you go to the casino with. You can play in the casino all day long. And then when you come back, they take those tokens and they burn them. And then they give you back your Bitcoin. So it's that's a really good analogy. That's way better. No, I think well you done. did it. It just, I just immediately thought casino chips the way you were describing it. When I was just going to say, you talked about the cloakroom, Daz, and handing in your cloak. I didn't take you for a kind of guy that walks around with a cloak. That's Yeah, I was thinking strip club when you started that whole spiel. I don't even... Yeah, what? I don't even have a cloak. Is, is, that, what, is that what they call? Temperature they 30 call degrees like bougie coats cloaks? No, a cloak in is the land like down a under? Is that It's like the, the Dracula. Yeah. I think of like... Lord of the Rings when I hear the word cloak. Yeah, for sure. Now I'm always rocking around. You remember that Seinfeld episode where um he's got the Joseph's Technicolor dream coat and he's pimping um <laughs> Kramer down the street. Does that rocking around yeah. cans on the Esplanade. The, the 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 other protocol I was gonna mention is ARC. I forget which episode we talked about this recently, Josh. Don't know a ton about it. We need to do a deep dive, maybe a whole episode yeah. on it, but it's it's a layer two solution that settles to the Bitcoin base layer like like lightning. Uh, but it doesn't have the same liquidity constraints as Lightning. There's no need to run an always-on server. Don't understand all the mechanics yet at this point. We need to do a deep dive. But the point is, we've we've named Lightning, which is really the main front runner right now. Arc, Taro, which is built on Lightning, Fediment, Liquid. These are all examples of things that people can try on top of Bitcoin. The the wonderful thing, which we'll round back to, is that. There are not the same gatekeepers in this protocol that there are in legacy finance. Nobody can tell you, nope, you can't settle to commercial banks. You know, there are huge limits to who can innovate in traditional finance right now. Huge, huge limits. Those limits don't exist in Bitcoin. It's bring it on, motherfucker. We'll we'll see if 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 it works. Great. If it doesn't, then you're obsoleted. Lightning has worked, and so it's proliferating. In my mind. Liquid at this point, I think it's very interesting. It's been a little bit of a dud. People thought it was going to be a really big deal. It hasn't really taken off. Such as Bitcoin. Innovate, try. That's how these layers are going to work. The ones 
that are that that earn respect. It's a meritocracy here on the layers atop of Bitcoin, and there's always somewhere to retreat back to that's safe. That's the mm-hmm. Bitcoin base layer. Like the whole Bitcoin ethos bleeds through all this stuff, guys. Like conservatism, bare asset, trustlessness, a non-debt based system. These are all things that seem to permeate innovators through the layers because the people that want to move Bitcoin tend to be wound the same way of wanting this thing to be robustly decentralized yeah. as, it, as it moves forward. The, and the big litmus test, I think, with a lot of these technologies is no one's issued a token. So the wider crypto ecosystem is a great test net for like, what's the future of digital assets and transfer? But it's so embroiled in scams and incentive schemes around these centralized bodies trying to make a quick buck. So if you've got like a file transfer system. You don't need a fucking token for that. <laughs> right? um, and that's probably the big red flag when you start to, you know, anybody new to this sort of technology and they're floating around, they're looking at all these various things. It's like, does it have a token? And what the fuck is it for? So anything worthwhile doing is being built on top of Bitcoin and none of those that are doing it are issuing a token to raise funds or liquidity, right? It's all based on this open, free and open source sort of, development and and it's creating an ecosystem where those people who contribute are getting rewarded through a value for value type of model there are people like the jack dorseys of the world who are looking at these advancements in technology and the incentives that are behind the builders building these Mm. things they're doing it for the betterment of the technology and the betterment of society not for financial gain so they're not issuing tokens they're not trying to use retail investors' wage earners as exit liquidity to try and pump their bags. They're doing it because they see value in what they're building and they are duly rewarded through these other, you know, um, altruistic endeavors and altruistic people who, you know, like fast forward 10 years time and my bags of Bitcoin are going to be worth a hell of a lot more in purchasing power. Big God damned if I'm not going to contribute back to this, um, For sure. to the network who, who, who made... Who, who helped to improve my purchasing power and helped me lift myself out of, you know, everyday wage earning, you know, as a, as a means of just being able to get ahead and provide for my family. I'm definitely going to give, be giving back to that and, and, and probably very generously. And that's what we're experiencing now from people who have been in this um, ecosystem for quite a while, sitting on big bags, they're giving back. They're making sure that this thing is continually worked on for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. Yeah. There's... It, it's important too to think to remember like this doesn't mean that these are the only tertiary layers that can exist. There's no limit to how many of these second layers can be invented, can be tried, can fail, can succeed. And they they don't add weight to the underlying base layer, base layer protocol. So we can have a thousand different implementations of these second layer technologies or side chains. They can all be functioning simultaneously and they don't have any effect on what happens in the base layer, which is where it all kind of folds back to in the end. And yeah. when we when we go back to kind of comparing and contrasting this to the traditional system, this like Bitcoin with Lightning is faster, less trust enabled, no debt. It's more usable. It's censorship resistant and it's fungible all the way throughout. It is orders of magnitude. I think it was Peter Thiel that said you need in order to have a competing um, network compete with something that's entrenched, it needs at least a 10x improvement in order for it to gain traction. I think it's easy to say that this is at least a 10x improvement over the current system that we currently have in the world right now for the a whole myriad of reasons that we already went through today. 
Yeah, I was just going to add that um, like a perfect example is like you look at the traditional banking system and after 2008 and they put through Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank put so many hurdles on small banks that they just could not compete. So we've seen basically since uh, 1980s to today, we've seen the US go from 25,000 bank branches to 6,000. Like we've just seen the decimation and the monopolization of the banking industry. And we're seeing it recently with, for those that are kind of been following the Silicon Valley bank collapse and these other bank collapses, all of a sudden we've seen FDIC where they're now selecting big commercial banks where they're willing to up that $250,000 limit to right. unlimited. Whereas the small, the small little local branches, they don't have that same benefit. So all of a sudden you're incentivizing the movement of money from small banks to big banks. Now, what has this got to do with Bitcoin? Bitcoin has none of this legislation in place. It's got none of this lobbying to create these monopolized industries. If four of us wanted to start up our own project, our own side chain or our own kind of um, layer two solution, we can do that. And if it offers value, it allows creative destruction to take place. If we can outperform the Lightning Network, then we stand a chance of being able to do that. We don't have to fight these big commercial entities that lobby against the government to put regulation in place to impede us. Totally. Totally. The, the, There's no the other, in Bitcoin. Hmm. The other thing that's worth mentioning, and I'll this will be sort of my closing thought, is that these layers are important because when you think about proof of work and how the base layer functions, it's very unlikely that if our thesis plays out and Bitcoin becomes as valuable as we think, that average blokes like the four of us are going to be settling on the Bitcoin base layer very often at all. Fees are going to get really expensive. It's going to be a big deal, a big deal to settle on the Bitcoin base layer. So most individuals in the future, if Bitcoin continues to march forward, are going their Bitcoin, the Bitcoin that they own, is going to be on second layers. And it's going to second, third, fourth, fifth layers, I guess I should say. And it's going to get really easy, guys. R right now, you know, Daz, you talked about messing with a lightning node. Josh and I have too. We've messed with, with liquidity. There's some frictions there. It's 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 there's some challenges for the average Joe. The user experience has gotten so much easier even since we've been in Josh and it's going to continue to get a lot easier. And a lot of this is just going to become ubiquitous. You're not even going to know on what layer you're interacting with Bitcoin. I'm reminded of splicing that we learned about uh down in Miami. Dusty Damon was talking about it on the open source stage. And he was talking about how this new splicing development on Lightning is going to allow for the resizing of Lightning channels. Right now, one of the biggest applications that stood out to me is that there's sort of this two balance problem. You've got your base chain Bitcoin, you've got your Lightning Bitcoin, the two balance issue. And what splicing, one of the things it could enable is just one balance wallets. So you're going to be moving Bitcoin between Lightning and the base layer and not even know what's going on. This is another, just to highlight like Seb's earlier point around you know, participation in this thing is as deep as you want mm. to possibly go. If you want the deep dive, you want to fully understand it, it's it's accessible to you. You can, it, it takes a bit of work, but you can understand the ins and outs of this fundamental protocol. You try and do that in the traditional finance system and it's just layers and layers and layers of obscurity. Yep. You don't know where funds are going and settling down. The other thing which I'd like, if you want to run a lightning note, you can. That is absolutely within your power with access to some cheap, very cheap hardware, try and fucking start a bank. As a comparison, you're basically the function you are providing is you're basically going to be, you know what? I want to be Visa. So the power is, is it's absolutely accessible to you as a human to go and 
become part of that visa network. Whereas in the traditional finance system, that is way, 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 way outside of your ability to even begin to think about as a, as a single dude, you know, earning wages. That's just a, such a profound thing to me. It just blows my mind that, you know, it, it's, and, and like you said earlier, Dan, if it's all above you, you don't need to understand. I don't need to understand how TCPIP yeah. works. I don't need to understand the protocol that my email is using for me to send an email totally. to Seb every day. Like, I don't need to know it, but if I want to, on the Bitcoin um, protocol, I can absolutely And in understand. that email example, Daz, sending an email was really, really complicated at one point, and now 87-year-old grandmothers are doing it. So be careful with Bitcoin, because if you're, if you're a boomer or someone else sitting around going, this will never work, it's too complicated. I tried to set up such and such, and it didn't work. This will never scale. Think about if you said that about every other technology that's scaled. Think about the internal combustion engine. Think about the electrical grid. This will never work. Nobody can set it up. Well, look out because it is working and it's getting increasingly simple and it's going to get startlingly simple to use Bitcoin. It already is, man. And so be careful because it's moving out quick, especially when it's it can be developed on by anyone at any time. You might want some for a hedge yeah, position. And that beautiful thing. Just a little. <laughs> just, just. Totally. And, and and the nature of the open open nature of this thing and open markets and you know capitalism at, at its core is that services will be built to meet the need. So there are trade-offs. There are absolutely trade-offs. We've spoken about this ad nauseum throughout this whole series around the trade-offs. And there are trade-offs with with Lightning as well. You're trading off a little bit of security. You got to put a bit of trust in that network. You got to put a bit of trust in that in that um, you know wallet operator and and the and the the people behind that. There is an inherent level of trust. That you've got to put in, but that's why you think about it in ways that we've we've spoken about in the past. Around, I don't keep my net wealth on uh, on Lightning. I don't yeah. keep my net wealth in a hot wallet. I keep my net wealth in the base layer, and I use that as my wallet, as my proxy for my wallet. If I'm happy to carry around three hundred bucks cash, I'm happy to carry around three hundred bucks worth of equivalent Bitcoin on a hot wallet. As soon as you know I'm on an exchange, I'm looking to move that off into the base layer security. So there's always trade-offs. There's trade-offs with custody. And more and more services are going to meet the needs of people who interact with this protocol. Not everybody, unfortunately, as much as we want them to, are going to manage their own keys. So there will be trade-offs. There will be services. There are concierge services. There are third-party um, you know, services like Unchained who can help you manage your keys in a two or three multi-sig. There are services always going to be built on top in, in, on the side of these protocols to meet people where they are so that it's more and more accessible. But like from the fundamental understanding of what this thing is, both the asset and the network, by God, you better hope you've got mm. some. Or you're starting to at least uncover what this thing Get is. Get some. Get some. By the way, guys, I through the course of this discussion, I've been distracted a couple of times because I think this bed in my sister-in-law's bedroom actually is a king. It's it's a pretty big room. I think it's a king. So I if if, if by the off chance you my sister-in-law is listening, snob if you can't identify it right off the it's bat. It's a big room. It's a new environment. I was distracted by your mm. beautiful faces, but I got a level. I think it is a king. It actually theoretically could be a California king because uh, my brother-in-law is pretty tall. He's like six make four. Sure. I will investigate yeah, put it in the show and notes. make sure whatever it turns out to yeah, be. Let us know. In the I show will notes. I'll let you folks know down below what I'm yeah. looking at. Um, I'm the just. We talked to Tour last week, and he said something that I think struck me as interesting, and I think it's true. He said that if you're, you are a Bitcoin OG, if you moved Bitcoin on the base chain, mm. 
because 10 years from now, that's going to be a very rare event. Before we close this thing out, I want to say it one more time. I know, Dan, you mentioned it. I mentioned it. But if you want a really good one-stop shop for understanding a lot of this, Lynn Alden's piece, A Look at the Lightning Network, great resource. We'll link it in the show notes. If you get a single bed, you can stack more sats. <laughs> if you let your parents fuck in your bed, you can stack more sats. That's, that's awesome. No, they can stack more sats because they're not paying rent. <laughs> hey, micro payments, you can charge them by the minute. Yeah. Hey, that's scary. All right. It'll be, it's going to be 50 sats a minute, Ooh. mom and dad. They can afford it. Gentlemen, this was awesome. I think we I think we did uh, second layers justice. Big topic, going to be increasingly important as Bitcoin moves out. Base layer gets more expensive. Appreciate the hell out of you guys. Can't wait for next month. Um, enjoy that puppy, Daz. Yeah, you boys too. Thanks a lot, guys. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this chat, please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. If you haven't tried Fountain for Podcast 2.0 yet, we highly recommend it. You should check them out. You can get paid sats while you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please hit us up on Twitter DM or send us an email at bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.